Hello from Classical KUCO. This is Spotlight on the Arts, where we take a moment to talk with local artists, performers, composers, conductors, and leaders on the many special activities and challenges taking place within our community. I'm your host, Paul Nesper. For our September 7th episode, we sit down with Dr. Sergio Montero to discuss his first recital as a part of a cycle of concerts featuring the piano works of Johannes Brahms taking place Sunday, September 10th at 2 p.m. at Petrie Recital Hall. Then, we sit down with Dr. Danielle Harrington, Assistant Professor of Musicology at UCO, to discuss her upcoming Faculty Artist Concert Series recital titled Contemporary Song Cycles and Commissions, happening on September 10th at 5 p.m. at the Jazz Lab. Finally, we sit down with Joshua Roman, Oklahoma native and composer and cellist, who will be giving a recital at Armstrong Auditorium on September 12th at 7.30 p.m. As we like to say, let's put a spotlight on the arts here in Oklahoma. Please stay with us. Support for KUCO comes from Painted Sky Opera, presenting Benjamin Britten's Turn of the Screw, an operatic ghost tale September 28th through 30th in a return to the newly renovated Freedy Theater at the Civic Center Music Hall. Tickets available at PaintedSkyOpera.org. Welcome back to Spotlight. My first guest today is Dr. Sergio Montero. Dr. Montero is Professor of Music and Director of Piano at Oklahoma City University. This academic year, he will be presenting the complete piano and chamber works of Johannes Brahms in celebration of the 190th anniversary of their birth. The first concert will be Sunday, September 10th at 2 p.m. in Petrie Recital Hall at the Wanda Bass School of Music. Sergio, welcome back to Spotlight. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It looks like you're going to have a busy semester, my friend. This is not your first foray into playing a large collection of works from a composer. Uh, back in 2021, you performed 32 sonatas in 18 recit- I'm sorry, in eight recitals of Beethoven's music. You've also been putting together the collection of piano works of Louis Vierne. What compels you to just go so in depth into these composers' catalogs? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. I, I become I I've been fascinated by learning the the, the opera omnia, the the complete works of of these composers, and I think it gives you such a great perspective of the composer and of the artist. As I as I was talking to you. Uh, a little bit earlier. It's a little bit if you decide to read all Dostoevsky novels or all Tolstoy novels, you you start understanding so much that composer. And I think if you're part of the audience, it's very interesting too. When I did the, the cycle, the Beethoven cycle, that was the first time in 60 years that the Beethoven cycle, all piano sonatas have been performed in Oklahoma City. And the first time that was performed by a by a resident of Oklahoma. I thought it was so interesting that the audience was able to understand more of Beethoven and see the 
the variety of his music. Because sometimes we have that, that idea that a composer has a specific characteristic. I don't know, like if we think about Beethoven, like the appassionata and the very, this very passionate kind of music. But then when you start listening to the complete work, to the complete music, you will see that there's so much more of that. And sometimes like this, this kind of a stereotype uh, of the composer, it's actually, it's not, it's, it's not even that much. It's like, uh, sometimes it's even like a small part of his music. But sometimes it's so, it's so important, it's, 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 uh, it's an important part, and then become, it become more known than the others. But if you start listening to everything, you have like a completely different perspective of his music. I'm I'm relating it to just because I know here in 2023 a lot of people are fascinated with like sci-fi and time travel, and when you do yeah. an entire collection of composer, in many respects you are going through time. Now, granted, a much smaller sample size. You know, if you're you know have a composer that lived for 60 years, they were composing for most of that time. So maybe they started beginning of classical period and end at the beginning of the Romantic period, or maybe they start late Romantic and go well into the 20th century. And you can hear that shift in style or just maturity as the composers get older and have more life experiences. Yeah, totally. You can see that. Somehow with Beethoven, it's interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to talk too much because Beethoven's. That's such one a B. We've got another part. B. We're going to talk yeah, about. Yeah, we have the second <laughs> B. We have a new B now. In Beethoven, Beethoven starts already. So he start writing music. He start publishing music for piano relatively well. Music in general, relatively old. I mean, he was yeah. 25, 26. So he starts as a as a as a very mature composer. I mean, he knew exactly what he was. He was doing, which is pretty unbelievable about his his work, I yeah. think, for, particularly the piano sonatas. The first piano sonatas are as incredible as the last ones. <laughs> With Brahms, on the other hand, you can see that, I think. You really can see the evolution of his style. Well, and that's a great segue because I'm terrible at them. Uh, so uh-huh. we've talked about how you like to immerse yourself in the works of composers. So you'll be doing seven concerts throughout the 2023-2024 school year, some solo, some chamber works. So what specifically about Brahms brought it to you for this year? Yes, it's the 190th anniversary of their birth, but is there anything else I kind of said to you? Like, "Mm, I'm really feeling like I want to do a Brahms cycle this year. Yeah, Brahms is a fantastic composer. I mean, and it's it's interesting because this year was also 150th of uh, Rachmaninoff. And since 150th, I think it's a more even number. So it's Rachmaninoff music was very much performed mm-hmm. all this year. I mean, you could see all the, all the pianists playing lots of Rachmaninoff. Maybe people are waiting at 10 more years to get to, get to, to the 200 <laughs> of, of Brahms. But uh, I thought it was Why interesting. Wait? Why wait? Exactly. <laughs> I don't want to wait 10 years to do that. So I thought this uh, 190 was a great excuse. And I was always fascinated by the music of Brahms, particularly the what people call the late Brahms. Towards the end of his life, of his life I mean, he wrote lots of, lots of music for the piano, and uh, they're just absolutely gorgeous. That's, we could say that that's the, the, that's the true mature style of Brahms, and uh, I just could not wait to start learning all that all those compositions 
So what is it about Brahms' music that speaks to you especially? I, we all have composers that speak to us, and so I realize I might be asking something somewhat personal, but as a tuba player, we don't get a ton of Brahms that we get to play. I've got to listen to a ton of his music. Mm-hmm. I could listen to Brahms' Requiem all day. So yeah. what is it about Brahms Which especially? Which are relatively early Brahms, right? Oh, yeah. Requiem. Brahms have this combination of classicism and romanticism. It's interesting because in the 19th century, particularly the second half of the 19th century, you had those two schools mm-hmm. that at that time were, they were like very opposite to each other. Uh, one was like the new the new music that was like Liszt and Wagner. And on the other hand was uh, the conservatives. And Brahms was like the leader of this conservative school. So Liszt was the progressive and Brahms was the conservative. And it's interesting because as time went by, and as the new, new generations start studying and performing more of Brahms' music, I'm talking the first decades of the 20th century, mm-hmm. people start realizing actually how progressive his music was. And composers like Schoenberg, for example, wrote a very important article talking about how progressive Brahms' music was. And you can really see that particularly towards the, the, the end of his compositions. He's just a wonderful composer, and um, I, I like very much the intimate nature of his music, particularly the, the, the intermezzi. I'm going to have to go back and give some later Brahms a listen to after this. Just I love Schoenberg. I respect Brahms. I'm hard-pressed to say that I love him as a, as a composer, but this is why I like having conversations with people like you, because it opens your eyes to things you don't necessarily think of, or, or, uh, or they just remind you that, hey, there's other stuff out there versus some of the mainstream stuff that gets played all the time. So. Yeah, because he spent all his life studying counterpoint, studying composition. It's interesting because even his piano output, you can divide like in three. You He has like the three sonatas that he wrote when he was extremely young, extremely young, like <laughs> 18, 19. And those are like monuments of the piano repertoire. And then... He spent part of his life writing only variations. And with those variations, of course, I mean, ask any composition student. I mean, variation is the best way to study composition. So he pretty much spent probably like a decade of his life just studying variation techniques. And then towards the end of his life, he he went to the small forms. And that not only for the piano, but also for the... For example, for the sonata for clarinet, that's a relatively, it's, a, it's all this. His music becomes more, more condensed. And this condensity of his music shows extremely, shows composition skills uh, extremely advanced and really looking forward to the, to the 20th century. And these variations, I mean, you see that Schoenberg was all, all 12 tone technique is about counterpoint yep. and about variation technique. And he could see all of that in Brahms. You just blew my mind. I'm not even going to lie. <laughs> yeah. It, it has been a few years since music school. I will certainly yeah. see that. Uh, yeah. But wow, but that's fascinating. But of course, these allied with like a, a very, very deep musical feeling. I mean, it's not, Brahms music is never dry. It's no. never dry. So much. That's what I'm saying. I mean, Brahms allies combined so much classicism, this balance of the classicism with these the the feelings of the of romanticism so you can you see everything in brahms it's fascinating this this is yeah. 
this is going to be a great, great series of concerts. So that actually wasn't a terrible segue. So we'll focus primarily on the September 10th concert. That is the first one that is happening this Sunday. And it is just you. Yes. Just solo piano. So what can we expect from this concert? Just like to talk a little bit about the series, I oh, decided sure, sure, sure. Brahms' solo piano music is wonderful. But the music that he wrote for chamber, uh, the, his chamber music with piano, I think is equally it's important. I mean, it's very hard for me to, to, to separate the solo piano music and the chamber music with, with piano. Mm-hmm. And they're equally hard. <laughs> <laughs> so when, when I had the idea of doing a Brahms ser- series, it, it was very hard for me to separate solo and chamber music. So that, that's why I invited my colleagues from OCO, my wonderful colleagues, to play three chamber music recitals with me. So I'm very happy that we are doing that. Uh, it's but, fun making music with friends. Oh, yeah, it's wonderful, yeah. Especially at a high level. Only, yeah, I think you can only make friends, uh, only can make music with friends. And even even if the person is not a friend, after making music, they become friends. That's usually the case, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but we start with with a solo recital. And, and not only is going to be, this recital is not going to be the first recital of the Brahms series, but also the, fir- the inauguration of our new piano. Ooh. We yeah we just got a new Steinway G, uh, which is abs- absolutely a wonderful instrument. I went to New York to pick up, and uh, it was a it was a was a treat. I was I was very happy, and so anyway, so it would be very nice to have like all this beautiful music performed in this absolutely gorgeous uh, new instrument that we have, and I'm performing. I'll be perf- I will start with the waltzes. All 16 waltzes, Op. 39. The the two rhapsodies, Op. 79. And I will finish with the Op. 116 cycle. So it will be a... Will <laughs> a be light a very, concert. <laughs> yeah, it will be a very, very... Lots of variation. Just And I want to make sure that we get the correct information out to our listeners. So for our classical KUCO listeners, all the concerts are going to be in the Petrie Recital Hall, correct? Correct. All concerts are $20, correct? Correct. Excellent, excellent. And where can our listeners go to find out about future performances beyond the one here on September 10th? Is there a website we can direct them to? Yeah, they can go to to the OCO website. What are you hoping that our classical KUCO listeners, or just the listeners in general, get out of this initial concert? I think they're going to, I mean, that's that's what I, I mean, I hope I will provide for them uh, music of the highest uh, beauty that you can imagine. These waltzes are just unbelievably beautiful. Uh, the two rhapsodies are very famous and very performed. I mean, I like even piano students. I mean, it's a it's a it's a it's a piece. It's like a, a war horse of, of pianists. I mean, very very often pianists play those pieces in competitions in, in recitals. And the one uh, the Opus One Sixteen is uh, it's my favorite cycle. He he wrote several cycles towards the end of his life and the opus 16 is my favorite favorite one it's a it's a, a cycle that that combines intermezzi and capricci and it's it's just one more beautiful than the other it's just beautiful music it's music to dream i think that's i i hope that's that's what the the, the audience is going to be going to be getting 
Well, while this is our first time getting to meet each other, I have had the opportunity to hear you play a handful of times in my life, and I can say with fairly confident certainty that you will you will have a beautifully virtuosic performance for the listeners to be able to enjoy and really get a grasp of this these Brahms works and get a sneak preview of some other things that'll be coming down the pipeline throughout the year. I think that's going to be the that's got to be the coolest part about this is you get to do the opening recital. It's just you, but it's basically alternating you, your friends, you, your friends as we progress through 2023 into 2024. Yeah, that's right. That's the idea. Oh man, it's got to be such a great feeling. So this is your second time doing a large-scale cycle of a composer. Back in 2021, you did Beethoven. And from my understanding, even in the midst of the pandemic, it was still fairly well-received. Is that correct? Yes, and uh, that's, that's actually one of the reasons that motivated me to propose a new, a new cycle to the, to the music, for the music school. Uh, we had an average of like 100, 120 people in every concert. So, and that was during COVID, people were still masked. I know that several people were still afraid to go. For sure. And uh, so I hope this time will be, will be even more people. So I'm really, really looking forward. Quite frankly, I think the pandemic has taught us to appreciate the things that we enjoy even more. I know for me, and I know for a lot of our classical KUCO listeners, it's getting to go to concerts and concert cycles like the one that you're about to put on this school year. So I know I am looking forward to it. I'm sure our listeners are going to look forward to it as well. Sergio, thank you so much for joining me today on Spotlight. It's such an honor to finally get to sit down and talk with you. (laughs) Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Coming up next, Dr. Daniel Harrington, Assistant Professor of Musicology and Soprano at the University of Central Oklahoma. Please stay with us. Support for KUCO comes from the Oklahoma City Philharmonic, presenting a classics repertoire juxtaposing traditional classical music with modern works, and pops with show tunes and a movie score. More information at okcphil.org. Welcome back to Spotlight. My next guest is Dr. Danielle Harrington, Assistant Professor of Musicology at the University of Central Oklahoma. She will be presenting her recital titled Contemporary Song Cycles and Commissions on Sunday, September 10th at 5 p.m. at the UCO Jazz Lab. The concert is part of the Faculty Artist Concert Series with UCO's College of Fine Arts and Design. Danielle, welcome back to Spotlight. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, we've had you here in the past talking about opera on tap, but today we're talking about you giving a solo recital. So this will be part of uh, University of Central Oklahoma's uh, College of Fine Arts and Design's uh, Faculty Artist Concert Series. It's going to be September 10th, uh, which is a Sunday at 5 p.m. at the Jazz Lab. The title of this program, Contemporary Song Cycles and Commissions, how did the program idea come to you, and, and was this similar to other uh, ideas and programs you've put together as well? Great question. So, yes uh, and no. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so I have always had a great passion for commissioning as well as performing new music. And that is in multiple facets of, of my performing career and life as a researcher and what I like to dub a performative musicologist. <laughs> uh, so in my research and uh, what I've presented nationally as well. But this particular program came about because last year I did a sort of recital series where we were in Arkansas. We did the um, OKC Piano Club and then we finished off in Indiana at Ball State as guest artists. And that particular recital was all works by women. Nice. And so the two of the big song cycles on this, the one by Jody Goebel and uh, Rosephanie Powell, both of those came from that Works by Women uh, concert. It also had, um, you know, Fanny Mendelssohn and Clara Schumann. So we had some German leader. Yes. It had um, some unknown French composers that were um, female artists. And then also uh, Barbara Strozzi and Francesca Caccini. So really early, like we're talking early 1600s, Italian like cantatas. I just so, loved it when you went into the Italian accent. Yeah. Too. That was- <laughs> <laughs> um, so we were actually trying to represent the fact that women have been writing music for, you know, centuries. Um, but that being said, when I was planning this concert, I wanted to do something all English. There's, We can get into that later on. <laughs> um, and I also wanted to do some of my own commissioning. So in, in that vein, the second half of the concert, so it's about, it's a little over an hour, about an hour 10, and the whole second act is all works by women. But the first half has uh, a little more diversification. <laughs> nice. And I, and I know we've talked uh, when you've been here with Opera on Tap about doing a lot of those uh, songs and, and, and dueling divas and, and whatnot in right. English as a way for people not to feel left out, like, I don't understand what they're saying at all. Right. So is that kind of the same thought process with this recital? Yeah, some of it of being relatable, absolutely. And then just representing American music. You know, I think people think about classical music and they're like Mozart, Beethoven, you know, Verdi, the the, the greats of the, ni- the 18th and 19th century. Yeah. Um, but my research actually, I do 18th century works, so like broke classical, and then 20th, 21st century. So this is one of my research areas, which is all about new music, new writing, people living today, actually working and collaborating with creative artists who are a part of this classical tradition um, so that it's a tradition and style that is still very active and being being created today, that concept of creation, you know, and collaboration. I, I chuckled that I know you looked at me funny. Sorry about that. I just remember the last time you were here, you said you weren't a Wagnerite, and I, I noticed how you conveniently left out the 19th yeah, century. I, so. <laughs> Verdi. He was his Italian counterpart. Fair, fair, fair. (laughs) But I remember. See, I pay attention. That's right. (laughs) Good job. (laughs) Well, I, you know, I think obviously it's a great idea for a program, and you set me up beautifully for some of the questions that I was going to ask you. So, what led you to want to commission, uh, especially featuring the local composers that you featured? Yeah, so we've talked about Opera on Tap before. It's one of the nonprofits I run, and well, it is the non not one. I don't want, I do not run multiple nonprofits. Um, but in that particular arena, I've been able to be a part of commissioning because we do a ten minute opera festival. We've done three of those plus a large work as well. So I've been a part of four big commissioning projects, and there's just something so magical and exciting about seeing a creative artist 
create something from scratch, you know, and like craft music in this classical style, but something that also feels new and fresh and relevant. And um, getting to also be a part of that process as the artist, usually I'm singing other people's stuff, right? But when something is written for living people by living people, (laughs) we get this like beautiful, exciting experience of saying, actually, could we change the note here? This would sound better in my voice like that. Or um, this text isn't really working. Let's try this or this, you know? So it really is this um, back and forth process, um, not unlike probably what happens in the pop world, <laughs> you know, in songwriting. And um, so we've done that with small operas. And here getting to do it with art song was, you know, there were multiple drafts with the composers. And both of the composers that I commissioned came from doing opera on tap. They've actually written operas with us. And so this was their first time getting into art song. Nice. Um, and we went through, yeah, we went through multiple drafts and, they kind of took my lead on like what kind of text they were going to use. So um, Chris Prather is one of them. He's written Nicer When You Smile for Opera on Tap and No Justice, No Peace. And that was a big yeah. work he was working on for a, a while, if yes, I'm remembering correctly. because that one started as small and then expanded into an hour and a half work. Um, That's the beauty yeah. of the process. So yeah. sometime, and, and to your point, especially when you start working with composers, you may have an idea in your head of what you think it's going to be, but then as the entity starts to take a life of its own, it's right. like, well, I didn't even see it going this way. Let's see where we can go with this. Right, right, exactly. That's awesome. Well, and I think he had worked specifically with lyricists before, but he was having a hard time pulling out poems from the past. That's like a little bit of an issue that people might not know about with art song is that um, because of copyright, which we love copyright, not complaining about copyright. Um, (laughs) But uh, we really can't use poetry that is not in public domain unless we're working with a living lyricist or poet who says gives like written permission, right? And so um, he was having a hard time pulling from those earlier texts. And funny enough, my niece, who is a high school senior, which I know sounds so young, um, but she is an aspiring poet and author. She's going to college for it. She is a phenomenal wordsmith. And she wrote this poem this summer that just blew my mind, blew my mind. I showed it to Chris and he was like, this is the, the, just resonates with me. It's amazing. It's called Summer Was Killed Softly. And it's sort of about the beauty of July, but the longing for autumn. Um, So she uses like words like mist and mist. So M-I-S-T and M-I-S-S-E-D. And there's all this lovely um, play play of words. And he, he took that and turned it into just this magical melody. It's very whimsical. And that's what's actually going to open the program. Oh, nice. Yeah. Now, there's going to be a lot of collaboration in this program as well. So I know you've got uh, a couple pianists you're playing with mm-hmm. and then a guest artist. Can you tell us a little bit about those individuals? Yeah, yeah. So Megan Cluel, who is a staff pianist at UCO, she is a dear friend as well as colleague, and so she is playing on many of the pieces. Yeah, she's outstanding. I've, I've heard her with a bunch of collaborations, especially with uh, Peggy Moran. Like, right. she's just outstanding. She really is. And what's so funny is, so Chris is actually a percussionist by trade and and a composer, of course. But so that means that in his 
music, I know I've sung a lot of his music, you can always expect extremely complex rhythms because <laughs> percussionists love to go rhythmically uh, challenge, challenging for the players. Uh, and when he was like, who, who is playing for you? Because... Uh, it's going to be really rhythmically. <laughs> and I was like, oh, don't worry. Megan is like she's the best r- pianist when it comes to ryth- rhythms. You know, she's a rhythmist at heart. So, um, And then Hua Ju Lee, who is an adjunct instructor and plays for all of our choirs and oh, nice. in the dance department. Um, she's the one actually who I did the recital series with last year. Oh, very cool. So we're doing two song cycles, uh, Jody Goebel's The Ivory Box is Broken and Rosephany Powell's Then, Here, and Now. And interestingly, I found both of those pieces relatively recently uh, because I was searching out women composers. And actually, both of them have to do with pandemics. What's crazy, I know, don't get freaked out, audience. Uh, (laughs) The Ivory Box is Broken, actually. uh, She set Edna St. Vincent Millay, who her dates are 1892 to 1950. She was a great feminist figure and modern woman and uh, really advocate for uh, gender equality in the early 20th century. And when she was at Vassar College, she actually lost one of her friends to the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918. And so Jody took this in um, 2008 and set a song cycle to it. So what's crazy is that- Sort of cryptic. I know, (laughs) is that we can sort of connect to this now, like the feeling of loss and isolation and the grief that Edna was going through 100 years ago in that pandemic- now that's you know, wild. I know. I that's know. just wild to think about. Yeah, yeah. and because you know, you remember going through school and you learn about you know the plague and all the the various pandemics that have happened. Right. But you never lived through it. It's like, well, I I, I don't know what I would do in that situation. Yeah. And then we saw what twenty twenty happened. We're gonna yeah. stop at that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Well, and what's even crazier than is we finished the program with Rosephany Powell's Then Here Now, and that she wrote during twenty twenty during the pandemic. And it's based on African-American spirituals. She doesn't call them arrangements because it's like snippets. Is that the word? Snippets. There we go. (laughs) Snippets. It was snippets of um, those spirituals. And she said she sort of was coming to these while dealing with so many emotions of like the riots that were going on. She is an African-American composer as well. Um, So responding to the death of George Floyd and all the protests, the just the more uh, broad isolation that we were feeling, the, the uncertainty about the future, right? And she would take these texts to find comfort, like how her ancestors found comfort in them. So I think it's really important to note as well in her program notes that she wants people of all races, all cultures, all backgrounds, both the performers and listeners to experience this. And the third guest artist that I'm collaborating with on this recital for the performance aspect of it is Dr. Molly Johnson. She is my dear friend, colleague. She also is my school of music mentor. And so, yeah, it's really nice. I thought this would be a great way for us to sort of collaborate and perform together. We're doing a duet called Facing Forward. Again, another Jake Heggie piece. 
It comes from a song cycle called Facing Forward, Looking Back. And it's actually a mom and a daughter sort of going through the advice, I guess you would say, and and rebellion. And in this this particular one, the daughter's feeling quite lost and the mom is like encouraging her that there's so much to live for. So it's a really sweet, simple, encouraging piece. It ends act one. And I'm really excited to present it with Molly. How do you go about selecting composers and music? Not even just necessarily for this recital, but for all recitals. You've mentioned you've done mm-hmm. an all-female composer recital before. What goes into that process? Is it mostly new, old, somewhere in the middle? How do you come up with that? Right. So I usually have some sort of like kernel of an idea, and then that theme blossoms out. Now, um, like for instance, for my doc, one of my doctoral recitals, I wanted to do underrepresented poets. And so I oh. went about finding poets first, and then I looked at all the different settings by different composers. And then it's a matter of knowing my instrument. So I'm a soprano. I'm a high soprano, which means I like a higher tessitura, which um, for those out, out there, that means like I like to sing notes that sit a little higher. <laughs> Can we get a um, Queen of the Night aria before you yeah, get out of here? Not quite. Not quite that high. That that might be a little too high of a tessitura. Yeah, yeah, I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm not a queen. Um, <laughs> that's about four octaves higher than I can sing. Right. Um, uh, but yes, that kind of is a little bit of my process. I will say it's a lot of scouring and exploring. The internet is our best friend. But I did take, well, yeah. Well, we could get into that, but um, (laughs) we can go down the rabbit hole. But I did take a 20th, 21st century class, actually, during my doctoral work. And one of the greatest resources is we just built a huge document, collaborative document amongst us, where we have just lists of living composer websites. We have lists of different ensembles and groups that commission and favor promoting and advocating this work, the champions, if you will, of this work. So like Calliope's Call, which is up in the Northeast, um, there's a number of them. Laura Strickling, actually, she's a Grammy-nominated professional soprano. One of my pieces came from her because she uh, had a commissioning project called 40 at 40. And she was kind of in her mid-30s looking towards turning 40 and wanted to kind of put her efforts into commissioning 40 new works to commemorate that. And so that actually just released this summer. It's been in the process for four years. And um, I so I found it by just having followed her and seeing her album release, listening to the album and being like, I want to sing that song. It's hilarious. It's called Thanks a Latte by Lori Laitman and Caitlin Vincent. Yes. And I have a great love for Lori Laitman because one of my coaches gave me an assignment once to to find underrepresented women in the field. And she had this great opera called uh, The Scarlet Letter. We know that that piece of literature, but she wrote that around 2007, I believe. And then it had sort of a rocky, it got performed but it wasn't like at a professional situation it was at a university and it's finally been professionally performed in 2016 and then OU actually brought it here after I had found the work with my coach and Lori like came and did a um 
residency with OU. And so that's how I sort of got connected with her work. So when I heard this comedic song, I was like, I have got to sing this. (laughs) So it's a lot of just scouring and sort of following people on Instagram, knowing, going to websites regularly. There's a bunch of databases. Uh, The National Association of Teachers of Singing, they've actually sort of made a prompt, I guess, or a brief of wanting to advocate for new music. So they have a lot of competitions and resources where you can find stuff. But it's not all in one nice little neat place. You know, it is a real curating, if you will. Well, and and again, as you've kind of alluded to, your background as a researcher obviously helps you in a situation like this as you are seeking out new things, especially if it's underrepresented probably means there's not a ton of information out there about it. Right, right. So you just got to know where to go. Right, because like Thanks a Latte, I connected with Caitlin Vincent. Um, The fun thing about putting together these programs is so many of these people, actually everyone except for Edna St. Vincent Millay is a living person on my program. Nice. Um, Both poets and the lyricists and the composers. And so the ones that are maybe, I say this with, say this hesitantly, but that are quote unquote less famous... (laughs) There were air quotes for the record. Uh, right, right. <laughs> I have to reach out to them personally because in the program we put dates, right, when people were living. Well, we don't put, like, the date and then a hyphen, like the pending death, right? We just put a B for, like, born and then their birth date. So a lot of them I have to reach out personally and find out when they were born. That's a fun conversation to have. Like, hello, will you tell me your birthday? How do I know you're not a scammer? <laughs> but I reached out to Caitlin Vincent, who was the the lyricist for Things Salate, and we have so many research interests in common. She's sort of like me, a soprano who has gotten into musicology and now as a professional musicologist and uh, that's so that's been really fun to make those connections and she said actually that I'm the second one ever to perform this piece since Laura commissioned it that's super cool yeah (laughs) yeah man well yeah and again just knowing knowing where to look for things really makes a difference yes 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 obviously as a performer we go into recitals with certain goals and expectations but What are some of your goals and hopes for those uh, who are able to either attend this in person or watch it on CFAD's live stream? I hope they are affected. (laughs) I hope they feel something. I know that might sound sort of like trite, but often in classical music, there can be barriers and a lot of performing new music is creating these spaces for new, exciting feeling. Also, art song has traditionally been a very like stand at the piano and sing your song kind of experience. But I really treat these like mini operas. This concept of embodiment is a huge part of my research because as a professional singer, it's my job to literally embody someone else's feelings and thoughts, you know. And so when I'm sharing that with an audience, I want them to really feel like they're being immersed into the experience for instance, we didn't talk about the first half of the program that is primarily works by Jake Heggie. And I am a Jake Heggie scholar. I nice. have gotten to interview him on multiple occasions. Um, I presented his his works at a national level at multiple conferences. And actually, the songs and sonnets to Ophelia song cycle 
I've done a full analysis on, and I'm presenting at a conference in a couple weeks. Nice. Um, but Timing works out pretty well. I know. <laughs> so that's on the first act. And it's text is by Edna St. Vincent Millay, not Shakespeare. But the goal is that he's sort of taken these poems and you're meant to be Ophelia and so um, from, from Hamlet. And so I sort of read Hamlet, tried to feel uh, and uh, analyze and break down Ophelia and then take these texts and figure out where am I, what emotions on her psychological journey going from like being in love with Hamlet to being warned by her father to not trust him, sort of these conflictions. She decides to be rebellious. Then she declares her love and he rejects her and then she goes mad, you know? (laughs) And like sort of fitting all that into this compact 12 minutes, you know? And so I get to really embody Ophelia there. And my, my hope is that the audience, this sort of abstracted, quite intellectual concept, can feel accessible, this might get too like uh, heady for some people. I hope they feel it the way I've sort of tried to curate it. <laughs> um, but I follow that up with a piece called Would That I Were, Edna St. Vincent Millay. It was written in 2014 by Heggie, but, um, and the poet is Lucy Miller-Murray. And she and both Heggie loved Millay. Uh, they were so fascinated with her Vassar College, you know, up in New York. So it's kind of that that area. But the the whole thing is sort of this kind of becoming Millet. She was very rebellious for her time. She was pushing the standard and norms of what it was to be a woman in the 1920s, in the roaring 20s. Um, she's this sort of impressive icon. And the whole thing is the singer, like, would that I were, dare I be? No, no, I could not be. You know, it's quite melodramatic. And uh, it references so many of Millet's poems and all of these ideas. Because one of the things that was so critical Ultimately, is she put women as like the star of their story and in charge of their own personal narratives, which was very new at the time um, and feels so relevant to us today, I I would argue. Um, So, yeah, there's a good amount of grief and heaviness. And I try to balance every single one of those cycles with something uplifting and comedic and fun. And I wanted to just follow that up. Hannah Halbig is the other composer I didn't reference at the very beginning uh, in terms of local composers. She went ahead with my Edna St. Vincent Millay. It's sort of a sub-theme, by the way, if you haven't noticed. (laughs) I've talked about her a lot. Um, She went ahead with one of Edna's, or Millay, however you want to refer to her, uh, Afternoon on a Hill. Uh, I actually sent her just a huge plethora of my favorite. If you haven't caught, Millet is my favorite poet. And uh, I sent her a bunch of those. And she wanted to sort of capture her as this very carefree kind of person. And that was another persona that's going to be represented. And Hannah actually goes by uh, Oklahoma. And she's one of the premier harpist in the area so like she plays at pony boy um like regularly so yeah if anyone ever sees a harpist singing uh covers like uh, elvis and those good hits from she's (laughs) she's phenomenal and this is her first array into art song as well danielle thank you so much for joining us today on spotlight coming up next cellist and composer joshua roman please stay with us The University of Central Oklahoma ranks as a top institution for its Master's of Public Administration program. 
The top accredited program prepares UCO students for their future at an affordable cost. Visit uco.edu to learn more. Welcome back to Spotlight. My next guest is Joshua Roman, composer, cellist, and Oklahoma native. Joshua is the inaugural Joshua is the inaugural artist in residence with the Las Vegas Philharmonic and has performed all over the US and the world. He will be presenting a recital at Armstrong Auditorium in Edmond on Tuesday, September 12th at 7:30 p.m. and features the works of Beethoven, Bates, Bartok, Casarubios, Lee and Shaw. Joshua, welcome to Spotlight. We're excited to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Paul. I know you've uh, been able to travel the country and been able to travel the world, but I, I have to ask you, what's, uh, what's it feel like to be able to come home to uh, Oklahoma City on Tuesday, September 12th at 7.30 p.m. and perform a concert at the Armstrong Auditorium? Oh my gosh. Well, it's so special. I do. I live in New York City. I travel around the world, mostly the United States, of course, performing. And to be able to go back to a place where my parents and my brother and his wife and friends from childhood and my old teacher, where everyone can come and see me perform is really special to me. I'm very excited. Well, and it's a heck of a program. Uh, it's featuring the music of Beethoven, Mason Bates, Andrea Casorubios, James Lee III, Caroline Shaw, and Bella Bartok. So when you're putting a program together, do you have a general theme in mind, or is it just works you enjoy playing or want to present to the audience? That's a great question, and it actually can go many different ways. The way that a program starts is where I think for me it, it tends to vary the most. Sometimes it does start with an idea that I want to have a kind of theme. And sometimes it's just, hey, these pieces sound good together and what else would go with them? And then either way, both of those elements come into play by the time I'm actually sending a program to presenters. And in this case, I think it did actually start with more of a format. I wanted to do something that I think is pretty old school, and that's to start the program with a big piece and then to have second half with shorter works that kind of tell their own story in a curative way, so as a curator. So it's different than what I've often done, which is to do the shorter pieces on the first half and the big piece on the second half, like symphony orchestras often do. Mm -hmm. And that was really the origin of it. As far as the music that was chosen, that's where it really starts to be about what fits together. And with this idea of, of how it would flow, you know, what's going to make the most sense purely from just a listening standpoint. And as that was happening, yes, a kind of story of, looking to the future and being grounded in tradition and exploration. That did sort of emerge, but that wasn't really the goal from the beginning. That's just something that happened along the way, but it tends to, tends to work that way. And that's one of the things I love about this is discovering things myself um, that then I can share with the audience. Now, 
I wanted to ask also, uh, before I get too far ahead of myself, now you also are a composer. You're not just an outstanding cellist. You do some com- composition as well, correct? I just uh, yesterday finished recording my newest piece uh, for solo cello, yes. That's incredible. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, especially with relation to like musical voices, is when you have an idea come to you, I guess as, as somebody who has performed a lot in their life, and I can do a little composition. I'm not very good. How do you decide when you have an idea or um, uh, something in your musical voice speaking, how do you decide, okay, I want to write this out as some sort of composition for somebody else, or you want to just portray that voice through whether it be a Bach, uh, a Bach uh, cello suite or a Beethoven cello sonata? Oh, I love these questions. Oh my gosh, this is great. Um, I mean, that's something, I, I don't know. I don't know. That's part of the fun. Yeah. It starts, <laughs> you know, it's it's like sometimes it's, it's literally a deadline. I, the first piece I ever wrote, I'll, I'll tell you this as sort of, I, I love how I got into composition. I was working with an actor, Anna Devere Smith. She's incredible. If you haven't seen her work, um, she's, of course, in some mainstream things like Nurse Jackie, and I forget what her current TV show is, occasionally in movies. But what she's really known for is her one-woman plays where she interviews people on a subject, like healthcare or something like that, and then acts out those people's characters. Anyway, we <laughs> were working together years ago, coming up with something, first time she shared the stage, and I was... I was doing the music. It was cello and actor. And the cello was a character, so it was a lot. And I was using Bach, and we were at this rehearsal, and she's she's doing this character. And, and I'm like, you know, this, this Bach is kind of working, but not really. And she agreed. So I sent her a bunch of other solo cello music. And she listened to it all. We come back to the next rehearsal, and there's, again, the same spot. And I'm playing this thing that's by Ligeti, the solo sonata, and she'd listen to it. And we're both like, you know, it's not really quite working. It doesn't say what we want it to say. And it's not long enough. And I was like, you know, I'm so sorry. I don't know what to do because what we really want is is something that sounds like this. And I just played a lick. I just made up a lick (laughs) and played it. And she was like, yes, that's the one. Why don't you play that one? And I was like, oh, that's not a piece. <laughs> I was just I was just showing you. And she's like, I don't understand. Why can't you just play that again? And it hit me after a couple of minutes of this back and forth that, oh, why don't you just play the thing that you made up that works? And it may sound very simple or oversimplified even, but that's all composing is. You have an idea and you're like, this would sound cool or this would work here. And you do it again. And if you need to, you write it down so other people can do it. That's really all it is. And so for me, it's very practical, uh, this mix of creativity, of, of play, of exploration, combined with sometimes the need to write something down so that you or somebody else can do it again. And I'm really enjoying just letting myself play with that process rather than being too formulaic and that's the benefit of being a player who also composes rather than a full-time composer and I, I love it that's a really fascinating way to to look at it yeah I mean it, it's an oversimplification but it's also not I, I I like a lot of jazz and you know you kind of relate it to you know just an improv solo with jazz and 
you know, you're just taking that improv solo, writing it down, and then kind of just building building beyond that, whether it's a secondary theme, a variation, you know, just or just something completely different. So that's very fascinating. And in your to kind of tie it back to the programming, especially for this concert yes. on Tuesday, September the 12th, you're not playing anything that you've written. Now, I realize maybe there's an encore in there that we shouldn't talk about or you might be saving for, <laughs> for the end. But, you know, do you do you try to find a balance of, well, I want to pay respect to these other great artists that have written for me and maybe I'll save my solo works for maybe a, a CD or just a, a, a solo recital? So how, how did that go about? Well, that is, I think in this instance, um, that's purely logistical. I've not okay. written anything for cello and piano. That's it. Okay. Um, the circumstance hasn't yet come up. I've uh, had an idea and and wanted to do that. But at the same time, to your, maybe to a, the broader point, I love that part of what I get to do is share music other people have written. And I'm obsessed with, the music that got me into the cello, you know, the Bach, the Dvorak, the Beethoven. Um, so the Beethoven A major sonata on this program, that's one, of, that's one of the big ones. That's one of the ones that I've played for a long time that I absolutely love and find new things in and can't wait to share whatever that day's version is going to be with everyone that comes to the, the performance. At the same time, part of the tradition is not just playing old music. It's, it's, Beethoven being alive and writing music. And today, that's these are the people on the second half. That's people writing in their voice, in their time, sometimes referencing things from the past, like when Caroline uses a, a, a tune that we all recognize as Americans, that we'd all recognize and uses that to compose a piece. Or when James is responding to current events by using an old form, a, a lament. These are things that bring the past into the future and even look forward, especially in the case of Mason's piece and him for the future. I mean, he's literally like putting it in the title. So I love <laughs> I love being able to do that and share other people's music. And as a composer, it really excites me because I feel like I I have a kinship with them. And as a player, I feel honored to help realize their musical vision and share that. And, and so I, I don't feel the need to have my music on every program. And in this case, uh, I don't have anything that would match. Fair <laughs> so, enough. <laughs> yeah. Fair, fair enough. Um, now, Joshua, you are a fairly young person, even though you speak as a as an old soul, if we're going to use that term, you speak very <laughs> maturely and intelligently and passionately about uh, music. So I, I, I have to ask you, how do you like to incorporate the new media into your maybe mm. performances and or how do you utilize the socials to uh, gain exposure, especially when we think, you know, classical music, not necessarily something the youths of today are actively seeking out, but you are widely popular on the socials. Well, that's I mean, thank you. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I. I think like a lot of people, I have a love-hate relationship with um, social media, maybe technology in general, but maybe more specifically social media, because the more we learn about it, the more we see how much we're giving up in terms of privacy and 
all, all of the things that go with letting people have a window into everything you do <laughs> and not just a window, but, but help letting them help control that. So, so there are issues, but I also feel like it's important to be where people are. Ultimately, that's why I feel like I'm here. And that's what I do with music would not be the same for me if I were just doing it in a room by myself. I love music. I love the cello. I could probably last for a while, but <laughs> pretty soon that, that would get old because it, I, I, it's something I want to share. It's that connection that makes it real, that brings it to life. And so I want to be where people are and that's on social media or using technology to reach people. That's, that's part of it. I think ultimately the goal is to not have that actual connection and the power of that obscured by the technology. And that's something that maybe we have to play with and just be aware of. We don't always know whether something is going to be a benefit or not until we try it. And again, in terms of things like social media, it's happening, whether personally I choose to rubber stamp it or not. So I'm going to be on there connecting with people and, I'm also going to be very human about it. I don't think I've posted in weeks. So as I tend to, to go on and off with that a little bit and I'm working right now on getting people to help me with that, because I do think it's important again, to share and connect with people. And there are things that move faster, especially in technology than I can keep up with. And <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just basically be there, play. It's a, it's a place to connect with people, and ultimately, that's what it's all about. It is all about the connection. That's why we love music. That's what brings us together. That's what our classical Absolutely. KUCO listeners have come to expect. And so for our classical KUCO listeners that want to learn more about you, can you give us your website and or the uh, socials so we can keep track of all your travels and all your performances? I know you're uh, you're doing a, an artist-in-residency this season with the, La, uh, the uh, Las Vegas Philharmonic amongst a handful of other solo performances. So where, where can our listeners go to learn more about you? Yes, you can find more at joshuaroman.com and see all about those and the, the many other things going on. But also on social media, I'm on Instagram and Facebook, Joshua Roman Cello, all one word. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Joshua, thank you so much for joining me today on Spotlight. I'd also like to thank my other guests, Dr. Danielle Harrington from UCO, and Dr. Sergio Montero from OCU for joining me today on Spotlight. As always, thank you for supporting Classical KUCO in making wonderful conversations like these possible. KUCO is committed to bringing you the very best in local performing arts. Until next time, enjoy the arts. <laughs>